Good morning. Hope that you all are doing great and hanging in there in our uh, COVID-19 quarantine experience, although in Texas now, uh, they've let us uh, out a little bit more. Yesterday, I saw a guy in his car actually celebrating that. He had his family in there, and they had American flags hanging out of the window. They had a wind turbine thing duct taped on top of the car, kind of, and uh, they were celebrating. I was kind of actually wondering as I saw him drive down the street if those particular people should have been let free. Anyway, we're in Texas and we get to celebrate. Now, one thing that some people are doing in the midst of all this, they're making up for lost time and they're catching up on TV series that they've never seen before. And you probably have your favorites and you've been binge watching or something like that. But the one that I wanted to refer to today that might have a little bit to do with the message is one called Monk. And uh, I don't know if you are familiar with the series Monk, but this is this guy. He's uh, he's lost his wife. He's a police officer, a detective, or whatever he is. And the thing is, as a result of this trauma, he has all these phobias In fact, he has so many phobias, I think he even has a phobia phobia. And so the thing is, you you watch him, he's dysfunctional, but um, it would almost be unfair to say that he had OCD. I think with Monk, it would have been more like CDO, because he had to put everything in order. Well, the reason I'm even talking about this is this. Uh, And if you have never seen this before, this is going to sound like a spoiler, but it's actually not a spoiler. It's almost sort of like a disappointment. Uh, You realize in these first episodes that his wife was investigating something and she left him a gift. Well, guess what? He never opened the gift. Because of phobias and because of other things and because of I don't know what, he didn't open the gift. And finally, in the last episode, or last episodes, he opens the gift. And guess what's in the gift? It's a clue to who took his wife out. And so it kind of, because of the opening this thing, it solves the mystery. And once the mystery is solved, he gets over all his phobi. And I... I don't know about you, but I was looking at that last episode going, why didn't you open the gift? If you get a gift, you're supposed to open the gift, right? I mean, that it's built in with the expectation and the joy and all of this. And of course, the series only would have been that long. But even so, he would have been through all of his trauma. And I guess what I'm getting at here is I think sometimes because we don't open the gift, We allow our lives to get all wrapped up in all sorts of unnecessary trauma and phobias and fears and cares and everything. And what I'm going toward, and we'll talk about it in the message, is that we have been given a great gift. And it isn't just salvation, but, um, you know, we talk about uh, the expectation that we have of the Lord's return. I think that's an amazing gift. You realize, and of course the Plymouth Brethren know this, or somehow it's built into their roots, that because of this, because of that expectation of his um, of his return at any moment, it caused in the 1800s a great deal of excitement. 
the expectation, the thought of it, the wonder of it, the joy of it. And for a lot of people, it just caused their Bibles to fly open. And they had a joy when they came to the Word. They had a joy when they lived their daily lives. It was because of this. It was because of that knowledge. And that has something to do with what we're talking about in Revelation. Talking about prophecy and talking about the expected return of our Lord and everything. And I have the sense that this gift has functioned not quite for 200 years and we've lost something. That thing that uh, Moody and Schofield and Schaefer and Darby and all these guys talked about for a while. I mean, when I came to faith in the 70s, it was like the big thing, man. It was made Bible study exciting. It made being a Christian exciting. It made looking at clouds exciting. It meant getting the work done because he could come at any moment. And it seems to me that in Christianity nowadays, we think a lot of our cares and our worries and we know that Jesus is able to help us through all of those things. But what about the gift? The expectancy of His coming. The joy of His coming. We're going to be talking about all of these things. And along with that gift is the idea of opening the door. And we'll see what that means. So, what I'd like to do, this lesson, unfortunately, because of the nature of everything, is maybe going to sound a little bit more like a... Um, a classroom presentation. But what I want to do is I want to just go through again some of the things that we've been talking about to show you how God has prepared the gift, a new gift for us. And um, uh, the Lord has made sure that, like with this COVID-19 thing, we all know we are sharing a common experience with people, and when this is done, we'll be able to talk to them about it. And what a wonderful segue to be able to say to them and did you think about the fact that there's a God and that he, that he might be coming and that he's a person to go to and how that worked for you or whatever? Um, in this particular time that we're talking about in Revelation, God is preparing a gift. And maybe you're going to think I'm saying that because of my sense of humor, but it's just not that. It is actually a gift for mankind opening up the last time of harvest on earth before the coming of Jesus. So, before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help all of us to appreciate the great things that we've been given. You are still working, and it is in the heart of wisdom, the heart of a disciple, the heart of a spiritual person, to be able to perceive those things that you're doing every day. And you're doing some mighty things now in our world. And if we can latch onto that, if we can see that, you are opening up opportunities for us. You're opening a door for us. What a gift that is. And even in this time that we're talking about in Revelation, there is that sense in which you are preparing the world, opening up hearts for one more dynamic and dramatic time of harvest. And we're going to be looking at some of that and seeing what you do. And Father, we just pray you would open up our hearts to take advantage of those things that you've given to us now in this time too. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am going to draw your attention again to the PowerPoint that I used last week. 
and I've, I've added a couple things to it, but what I want to just talk about is how God is preparing the world for this time. This, wor- this time actually coming up to what we're talking about today is the beginning of the trumpets. These angels blowing their trumpets and certain things will happen on earth. And um, that will be exciting. So, we talked last week, or not last week, actually John talked about it, and I'm going to talk about a little bit about what he talked about. Anyway, um, last time I was up, I talked about the seals. Now, as you see on the chart, most of what we're talking about is going to happen in the first three and a half years up here. Okay, God is setting the stage. And so the seals from Revelation 6, they happen fairly quickly, I think. And what this does is it sets up an atmosphere in the world where there's a need, where people see they can no longer rely on their own resources. There is something that has happened that is bigger than a hurricane. It is bigger than any natural disaster that they've ever seen. Um, and it is unexplainable, except when you get to the sixth seal, it says that people actually have an awareness that this is something that has happened from God. So based on that, based on that awareness, God is preparing people, getting them ready for what is going to happen in the future, in the rest of this three and a half years. Now, one of the things that I wanted to... Uh, talk to you about is in chapter 6 it talks about when he opened the fifth seal I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne now this is going to be really important I think what happens here is the reason for the seal and is the reason for the trumpets, and so on and so forth. But what I wanted to call your attention to, and I didn't mention this when I uh, when I did this message, is why are they under an altar? I mean, uh, they could have been on a platform commemorating the cost or the price they had paid for their witness for Jesus Christ. It's just they're under an altar. And the thing about an altar, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, is it looks like normally when we think of an altar, it has something to do with sacrifice. But there are not any things that will be sacrificed here in terms of bulls and goats. I mean, the lamb's on his throne. We don't need any further sacrifices in heaven or anything like that. Why are they under an altar? I think it's because it's kind of a very holy thing. And the only sacrifice I can link to them being there is the sacrifice of their own lives. What they gave, because of the blood of the Lamb, because of being willing to perish for Him. You know, it says in Romans um, that we should put ourselves as living sacrifices on God's altar. Right? Well, I think that's what they did there. So, For now, that is all I want to say about that. The fact that there's an altar there, the altar may come come up again. We'll look at that. Now, the other thing about the list up here are the 144,000, and John talked about these last week. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about the 144,000, all preparing them to be standing there in their running shoes and be standing there ready to go. 
One of the things it mentions here is that there's this great multitude. After the 144,000 have been sealed, it said in verse 9, After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And the question then is, where did these come from? And it says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, here's the idea. You have the 144,000. They get sealed. And now, it shows you, I mean, this is all future, and then it kind of warps you into a new thing. It shows you the future of the future, that their ministry is going to, be tremendous. They are going to have an enormous harvest of people. And, you know, some people differ on, you know, whether the 144 get martyred or whatever. But the thing is, the people they lead to Christ certainly get martyred during that. And my thought about that are, you know, two things that are kind of interesting in God preparing this. I don't know, you know, I've been in I've been in a lot of churches. I've been doing this at this thing for about 45 years. And what you notice with people is that the older they get, the more their joy and their boldness and vigor diminishes. And um you know, being able to take social security right now, I kind of understand, you know, the the effects of gravity on your body and all of these things, but I wonder if that really is supposed to be that way. I wonder if it isn't the fact that our love and our excitement is supposed to grow and keep mounting. But here's what, here's what I'm seeing here. All of the 144,000 are newly saved. They're just newly saved. Whatever God does in those seals, and my thinking is that the rapture of the church is in there, the Jews are um, just overcome with a spirit of jealousy that they know that they have missed out on the Holy Spirit. They know they have missed out on their Messiah. And out of these, there are 144,000 people who just have come to Christ. And you know what those people are like, right? They're crazy. They just go out and they witness to everything that moves. They don't know any better. We haven't taught, untaught them yet. We haven't kind of cemented them and, and slowed them down and made them sit in pews and be so these are going to, this is going to be the most exciting force that has ever hit this planet. These people are alive and active. And what they're sharing is their experience, their first love. And remember the church in Ephesus. Their first love got lost because of the machinery of the church. And so these guys, they're, they're fresh. They're newly sealed. They're newly minted. They're alive and ready to go. God sends them out on a mission. And they're running out the door. They haven't even been told where to go. They're just going on a mission. And here's the deal. According to this text here, they cannot lose. They cannot lose. Because they're already being shown that the work of their ministry will be this huge harvest of people. And you may ask, like I ask myself, how would they even know that? Well, the reason they know that is because it's written here. And they will know the Word of God. They'll have the Bible, and all they have to do is read here, and they're going to see, hey, guys, we can't, we can't miss on this one. This is like totally guaranteed. This is, this is better than money in the bank. We can do anything we want, and God is going to bless us in it in leading people to Christ.
So, talk about a miracle, and I would say a gift of grace to the world. They will have the most energetic, highly infectious group of missionaries that has ever hit, and they will know they cannot fail. So I think that is pretty good on God's part to supply something like that. And then you have this thing about the two witnesses up here. And I just want to draw your attention to something about the two witnesses because they minister through this time of the trumpets. In fact, the reason I'm bringing them in is because I think the trumpets get called down by these two guys. So if you look really briefly at Revelation chapter 11, what happens, and you you know, you have to read this whole thing to really appreciate this, but in verse 6 it says, They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of the prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. These guys, this is like Moses and Aaron, right? In Egypt, God speaks to them and they tell Pharaoh what's going on and they walk out the door and it happens. Now, why is the world happy? When they die, look at verse 10, right at the end, it says, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwelt on earth. So how are they going to be a torment to those who dwell on earth if it isn't in that during this three and a half years that they minister as the trumpets are being sounded? And these are just the trumpets, right? Because it says here in chapter 11, they can do a lot more than that. They are going to be they're going to hear from God and they're going to respond and the people of the world will hate them and they will blame them for all of the trumpets that we're going to be talking about in a couple of minutes. So God has set these two guys up here and what that also means is that that Jerusalem is going to be relatively free of disaster as long as those two guys are in the city. So here you've got 144,000 going on. People are already asking spiritual questions, right? Why is this happening? Just like some people right now are asking this about COVID-19, right? And you've got the energetic workforce witnessing, going out there. How are they going to stay under the radar? Well, one of the ways they stay under the radar are these two guys running interference for them in Jerusalem. Because all eyes will be on Jerusalem. And I mean, this is going to be... I mean, CNN will be there, and if Blitzer is still around, he'll be there. And all those guys are going to be there. Uh, Talking about the two witnesses. No, so the last thing I want to talk about, and this is sort of an underlying theme that we've actually um, hinted toward a little bit, is you notice that red block I put in there. The red block says, the martyrs under the altar and their brethren, and the judgments in blood. Now, the reason I put that in there is for this reason. You see a lot of blood in these chapters, and you kind of wonder why God is doing that. The first time you ever hit any kind of a judgment in blood that I remember in the Bible is Pharaoh. Uh God tells Moses and Aaron to go out there, and Pharaoh, is, and he already told them, uh, Moses, that he would be doing this, but Pharaoh is out there, I don't know what he's doing, taking a bath or, or doing whatever. Moses and Aaron walk on the opposite side so they can get away quick, and 
Moses turns the water into blood. Now you might ask yourself, as I have in the past, why did he turn it into blood? Well, blood is gross, right? Maybe that's why he turned it into blood. You certainly can't drink blood. And if you're standing there, I mean, you know, it's going to turn you into half an Easter egg. The bottom part of you will be all red if you walk out of the water. But, you know, if it was just, say this another way, God is very intentional about his judgments. He does everything for a very purposeful reason. And that reason comes becomes crystal clear in Revelation. Now, you could think if it was just to be gross, then God could have made it slime. Uh, he could have made it snot. He could have made it grease. He could have made it a hundred things that you wouldn't want to be in, but he made it blood. And the thing, I guess what I'm sharing is that I'm, this is also kind of a little bit of a commercial for reading the one-year Bible, or at least reading the Bible through every year. I remember one year reading through this section in Revelation, and you get to, not this, but the bowls. And when the bowls are poured out, um, water becomes blood. And actually, there's a little bit of similarity between the bowls and the trumpets, and we'll get to the trumpets, but uh, it says the third angel poured out his bowl onto the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard an angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and they, you have given them blood drink. It is what they deserve. And it hit me that looking back, at Pharaoh, I hadn't thought through the whole story. What happened during the birth of Moses? What was going on? They were taking the innocent young children, male children, and they were throwing them in the river. The reason God was turning the river into blood was that the river had received the lives of all of those children. And so it was a very just punishment. I remember reading that and thinking, wow. And what is happening here, further on in the book of Revelation, is the world, in anger against God, will just mercilessly slaughter his people. And this angel says, you're just in giving them blood to drink because they have shed the blood of your saints. Verse 7, I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Remember the altar? That's where the martyrs are. Who, in the fifth seal, are saying, How long will it be till you avenge our blood? And when this happens in chapter 16, they cry out in unison with the angel, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So this theme going through Revelation, having to do with the martyrs under the altar um, and the killing of the saints, God will give his people up to show that his judgment is just. Of course, when those people are slain, they are given white robes and every tear is washed from their eye. But it is also proof that the world deserved the judgment that's coming. And by the way, the bowls, unlike the other things, the, the seals and the trumpets, 
the bowls are called the bowls of God's wrath. That will be in the second three and a half years. And when that happens, it is very absolute. So this is God setting the stage here. You have the trumpets. Uh, you have the seals where everybody has gotten ready. You have the strong covenant. I didn't even mention that, that the Antichrist is going to be making with the people of Israel. You have the 144,000 going out. You've got the two witnesses. And you have this theme going on where God is looking to see how people will respond to the testimony of the Word of God. And then that is where everything starts breaking loose. So if you have a Bible, look at the beginning of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, so now we're talking about the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And when I, then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, seven angels that stand before God, we have seen seven angels before. And I don't know enough about the book of Revelation to tell you this is an absolute fact, but it seems like there were seven angels that had to do with the church and its testimony. And if, in fact, it is those same angels, think of what that might mean. These would have been the angels overseeing the ministry of the church trying to get the word out. Well, I don't know if it means that at all, but these seven angels are the ones who get the trumpets. Verse 3, And another angel came and stood by the altar with a golden censer and was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar. So, you've got that altar again. And you've got the prayers of the saints again. And it says, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, which saints, I think it would be the ones who are under the altar, rose up before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled, filled it with fire from the altar. Again, I think this has something to do with the fact that they died for their witness. And he threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It seems to me that what is happening here is these judgments have something to do with the way the world and humanity has treated these people. And now God is moving forth into the next series here of these judgments. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets. Oh, and one thing I wanted to mention before I forget that. I mean, it's just maybe trivia. Um, it says he um, he threw it on the earth, and there were um, the fire from the altar. He threw it on the earth. Jesus said, um, "I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and would that it were already kindled." And here it is. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed. Hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Notice that there's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what that blood looked like. 
if it's just the color red, but why it says blood here, I think has something to do with God's judgment once again about the saints who are under the altar and their prayers and them requesting vindication and justice for what happened to them. But here's what I want to say, because I started this saying that God is showing grace in this. Notice that only a third is burned up. This is not the extinction of humanity. I don't know what movies you have seen having to do with humanity's extinction, but this is not it yet. Only a third. You know, and you just think, this looks, uh, for me, it looks like what is happening is like a meteor shower of some sort. And things are allowed to get through. Do you know how blessed and saved we are by the fact that our atmosphere catches so much stuff? We don't even think about it. We just take it for granted. What God is going to do, remember at the um, that sixth seal, what happened was, it says the stars looked like they were falling from the heaven, like when you would shake a tree. Well, in this little bit of time, some of them are getting here, and what they're doing is peppering the earth and causing a third of the earth to burn. And I think this is going to be widespread. And just think about that. What would that be like? To have that much smoke fill the atmosphere. Well, you know, you can call FEMA all you want. They're not prepared for this. And neither is a president. And neither is a premier. And neither is any country on earth ready for this. So you have the first trumpet. And it's amazing, right? But only a third. Just think about that. Verse 8, an angel blew his trumpet. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, the ocean. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships carrying iPhones from China were destroyed. No, just a third of the ships. Who knows what was on them? But this is going to be devastating. A third of the ocean, and you know, take your pick. It could be the Indian Ocean. It could be. It's probably going to be the Atlantic or Pacific. Some huge body of water. But a third of it will become blood. Whatever that means. Whether it's just the color. But here, God is calling it blood. And what that has to mean is that it is in judgment for those saints who are under the altar. And a third of living creatures died. And the third of the ships, all that oil, all that commerce, was put to an end. That will be a world that we know nothing about. You have an atmosphere filling up with smoke. You have something happening in the ocean. And then... Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water and the name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, um, polluted, uh, diseased, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now, while the other ones 
the other two disasters and trumpets that have been called down. Now, by the way, as these things are happening, you've got 144,000 people sneaking under the radar everywhere on the planet. I mean, these people have just dispersed. They're doing this work, and God is taking the total attention off of them. Right? Because they're just out there doing their stuff and just very excitedly telling people that God's coming. But this thing here, with a third of the waters, now how do you get one thing to kill a third of the waters? Well, as they would say on TV, and I always hate it when older people try to be cool, but I could just say, well, homes, that's pretty easy to explain. Homes. Do you get what I'm getting at? Homes. Where is a third of the fresh water on earth? Homes. Huron. Ontario. Michigan. Erie. And Superior. Wow. When I was growing up in Milwaukee, we already had jokes about Lake Erie. Everybody knew in Lake Erie it was so polluted you could just walk on the water there. Where else do you have a third of the... I mean, I'm not saying this. It could be somewhere else, right? I know nothing about China. I know nothing about other countries. Shall I admit it? I was really bad in school. You know, I I basically checked out during those hours. There were good hours of sleeping, though. But the thing is, is that very possibly a third of the fresh water of Earth in one whack could be taken out, and that would be the Great Lakes. You, You also realize, I'm sure and you've heard this from probably a dozen people, but the United States does not figure heavily. Uh, you, you, you can't kind of, rid, you can riddle Russia out of Revelation, but you don't see where the United States is, unless that's Babylon, and that, that would make sense then. Well, anyway, you now have, you now have the earth smoking and the atmosphere filling up with smoke. You now have the oceans um, polluted in some measure, a third of the ocean being taken out and living creatures in shipping. Boy, that's going to slow a lot of things down. And now you have people dying because of the lack of fresh water and probably it's not going to be easy to filter and do whatever they do to all that kind of stuff. And then in the middle of all of that, you get the fourth angel. And he blows his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light was darkened, and a third of the day uh, might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, stuff I have read on just a meteor, if, if it were to ever happen, a meteor the size of a car hitting the earth, would create such a dust bubble in the atmosphere that if you listen to one group of scientists, they would say it would cause another ice age because it would block the sun. And if you listen to another group of people, it would be like, nah, but it would be really bad. The point is that God is going to diminish for the rest of this time, it appears, um, a third of the light. And you've already got the earth smoking. So whether it's from that or something else is going to happen, this is what God is going to do. But only a third. When you get to the bowls, it gets bigger and better because something absolute happens before the bowls are poured out. 
And then right at the end, to do verse 13, And then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. See, because this is all natural at this point. The next three trumpets all have a dark spiritual dimension to them. It's kind of like asking the question, um, Dan, how is any of this positive? I would say it in this way. God is making, we can go back to that, that slide, God is making a lot of preparation to have people's hearts open. Let's face it, when everything is going fine, we don't think of the fact that we're going to die. We don't think of holding back. We think everything, especially in the Western world, is to be given us, and it should be given to us quickly. If I order something on Amazon, if it's not there the next morning, I'm going, uh The thing is, God, in His wisdom, will take all of that away and get people to start questioning about life. And especially when it says that sixth seal makes them believe that God is up there and He's extremely angry. And they see that there are two men in Jerusalem who are holy men who are calling down God's wrath. And you can't explain that away in any other way. as to say, these guys somehow are connected to God and they're making this happen. And in the meantime, you have 144,000 people who have spread themselves out over the globe. Australia, Asia, Indonesia, South America. These people are all over the world. And they're witnessing to Jesus Christ. And it says in chapter 7 that the number of people that they lead to Christ is, figuratively speaking, not a number you can count. So there's going to be this great harvest. And God is only taking out a third. So people still have time to respond. So... You can look over these passages and and think about stuff. Maybe you'll see things differently. But what I want to do is I just want to talk about what this might possibly mean to us. I think that in light of what is happening now with COVID-19 worldwide, God is opening up an opportunity for us. I think that in some measure he is getting people's hearts ready. What concerns me is not the readiness of their heart, it would be more the willingness of our hearts uh, to move into these open doors to share the love of Christ with people. I'm really concerned about the fact that um, so many of us look like the church at Ephesus. We got our doctrine nailed down and we're doing the right things and we're, we're doing things Germanically in right angles and we're keeping everything organized. We have just lost the first love. And it's like, how do you know I've lost the first love? Are you witnessing? Are you joyful? Are you sharing the joy of your experience with Jesus Christ? Remember, one of the marks of being filled with the Spirit from Ephesians was something like um, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. That is a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Do we still have that joyous eruption about the fact that we have been saved? 
I mean, we were lost and now we've been found. We've been saved. Can we run out there? Very simply, not having to think about our, our apologetics and how we countered this argument. Is it just so alive in us that we're willing to go out and we're willing to say, look, this is how he helped me through this whole thing. It was amazing. I think we need to be willing to do that. We need to be willing to open the gift. And what I'm going to do, just talking about this, one more thing, is um, for my friend Rajan, he wanted me to do a, a summary of the uh, seven churches. And it was something that hit me when I was doing it. Uh, sometimes just having to summarize things and do them quickly. The two churches that had nothing negative said about them. They only received accommodation, an accommodation from Jesus. They were the persecuted churches. And Jesus had a special word for each one of them to encourage them, to strengthen them. To the church in Smyrna, he says this. He says, they are going to come for you. Be willing to die for me. That's what he says to them. Be willing to die for me. They've already shown that they're willing to be persecuted. Now he says, are you willing to die for me? Well, Jesus was sure willing to die for us, right? So, I mean, it only seems like, you know, you're repaying in kind, right? But the, the reality is, you know, we talk so much about the fact that he's redeemed us. Our future is guaranteed. We have nothing to lose unless we think our treasure is on earth. So to this one church, he says, are you willing to die for me? And then to the church in Philadelphia, also a persecuted church, Jesus says to them, I'm about to open a door. I'm going to open a door that no man can shut. Here's the deal. Are you willing to walk through it? And I wonder, I truly wonder, are we willing to walk through the door? Now, of course, we are not in this kind of situation like my friend Rajan is in Elmhurst, right? I mean, they are at the epicenter of what's happening in New York City, and they're responding. I, they, they're buying stuff, and they're taking care packages out. They see death all around them. Deaths that aren't even being recorded, that are not happening in hospitals, that are just happening in apartments because people can't get out and get treatments. But they're out there. And what I'm saying, and this is what I envy, they are in a place of need, and the the Lord threw the door open, and what did they do? Did they run in the opposite direction? Did they go to New Jersey or go to Virginia or go to Iowa? No. They ran through the open door. And I know this is all theoretical for us, but I just wonder, if He opens a door, are we willing to run through it with reckless abandon? Counting the cost, and the only cost is, are we willing to give our lives? So, as I look at what God is doing in Revelation here, in those first three and a half years, I know there's a lot of loss. I know there's a lot of death. God can handle all of that. But He is giving the earth one more chance. And and we already saw in chapter 7, it's an enormous harvest. It's one worth giving your life for, because Jesus gave his life for us. And I guess my application here is, I think God is preparing hearts. And so looking at these two churches, I would say, are we willing to die? Are we ready to die? 
Are we willing to walk through the open door? And I think we will be if Jesus is our first love. Nobody can take that away from us. The joy in the flesh of saying, once I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dead, but now I am alive because of the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Father, you know the fears of our heart. You know that we're dust. You know what shakes us. You know what concerns us. But somehow in all of this, we need to lift our eyes higher. We need to realize that our home is not here. Our home is in heaven. And if we were to lose everything here on earth, that would be okay. That's why Jesus said, put your treasure in heaven where nothing can affect it. It gives us a different heart and a different life. And I see you doing that in our day. I see you doing that in the tribulation. But it all comes down to us right now. And I think the place to start is just to lay our hearts before our Lord Jesus Christ and saying, Lord Jesus, give me that first love. Give me the flush of joy. Give me that sense of reckless abandon, the willingness to run out in the streets, even though we don't need to, to yell, I've been saved. (sighs) To have that childlike joy again. Lord, give that to us, we pray. And make us prepared that when all these quarantines are over, we go out with that childlike faith and joy and share with the people around us. And we ask this earnestly in Jesus' name. Amen.